Once again, welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome uh, Young Voices contributor Torben Halbe back to the program. Torben, it hasn't been uh, so long since we've had you on, but for those who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Um, I'm glad to be here again. Well, um, first of all, I am a biologist uh, by education. And in my master's degree, I was specialized in neuroscience, which is why I have been following the uh, AI development to some degree. And it's also interesting uh, for me because where right now I'm no longer working as biologist, I'm working in politics. I'm uh, part of a libertarian think tank in Berlin, Germany. And so, of course, I've been, well, following that AI development uh, surrounding ChatGPT, both as a scientist of sort, uh, uh, or ex-scientist maybe, and as, well, a politically active uh, person. You know, a, a few weeks ago, a friend sent me a YouTube video of uh, a reporter talking about AI and in particular how AI was going to change everything. And I'll admit, I watched the video and I thought, OK, he's making he's saying this is going to be a very, very big deal. But I have to say, in a very short time, suddenly chat GPT has come on the scene and I am seeing people referring to it and instances of them showing screenshots of their interactions everywhere. So apparently it is a pretty big deal. For those who are not familiar with chat GPT, what are the basics that could help a person understand what it is and what it does? Well, chat GPT is basically a chatbot, uh, which means an automatic uh, generator of language. And well, chatbots have been around for well quite a few years by now, but uh, they used to be very primitive and it was very easy to tell that, well, it's not a human being that you are chatting with, uh, but with recent uh, progress in AI development, ChatGPT is able to, um, well, write very human-like texts and also follow your instructions quite well. So not only can you ask it some questions and will get uh, a reply, similar to a search engine, like you know, you can also ask Google and then you will get some websites. But if you ask ChatGPT, you will get uh, basically a little essay regarding your question, uh, but you could also ask it to write code. Uh, and you can also give it more elaborate uh, instructions, like, I don't know, maybe categorize a text according to something, stuff like that. You know, I have a good friend who does a lot of uh, online marketing, and he said that uh, this will actually make his job much easier when it comes to, to generating scripts. He says it, it will it will save him so much time. So there's a very good side of that. However, there's also a risk that comes along with this when it comes to political use. Talk to me about uh, some of the risks that are posed by AI and specifically chat GPT. Sure. Well... As you said, language is uh, 
on the one hand, is an important tool for marketing for all kinds of useful, very useful things. And um, this is why I think ChatGPT and similar AI will be the next big deal, basically. It can, to a degree, automize jobs which were not uh, possible to automize before, especially the more boring, repetitive aspects of uh, generating language. And this will be like the next industrial revolution, so to speak. Only this time you don't automatize the production of some goods like textiles or uh, steel or something. You're automatizing the production of language. Um, and the first industrial revolution was amazing, of course, regarding what it did for people. It uh, took millions out of poverty and uh, allowed billions to, of people to live uh, on this earth. Uh, which was never before really possible. And I think it will be similarly beneficial. But when it comes to politics, language is, of course, a tool of power. And who controls political language um, has a lot of power. For example, right now, especially in Europe, but also to a degree in the United States, even though in the United States it's more bipolar, so to speak, Leftists have a lot of power uh, based on language. Environmentalists have a lot of power based on language, and they end up making laws that, uh, well, interfere with our lives to a very strong degree. And uh, they also manage to get a lot of tax money through uh, this power for whatever projects they like. And and even as people, they are quite good at using language, manipulating language, mass producing propaganda, stuff like that. If they had the support of artificial intelligence, they could scale that. Uh, and not just a bit, they could, they could scale that by orders of magnitude. One of the things you point out in your article that rang very true to me is so much of the online political discussion um, really isn't drawing on fresh ideas. And actually, you point out AI isn't generating new ideas of its own so much as it's drawing on previous political debates. So if we've been arguing in an echo chamber, is the AI pretty much going to argue from that same echo chamber? Uh, yes, I think... To a large degree, yes. Um, it's maybe a bit of a philosophical question to define what creativity means. And I think the only creativity that uh, AI might be capable of is if something is already kind of hidden in the data. Uh, just no human being has drawn that uh, well conclusion so far. Uh, and then, of course, by chance, AI might discover it. Um, but um, what AI certainly cannot do is introduce new information from real life into the debate, unless someone else has said it uh, before, because AI does not live. Uh, it just, uh, you know, it, it, uh, unlike people, People have their life and then they translate basically what happens in their lives into language. And mm -hmm. this is an important source of new ideas. AI certainly does not have so far.
So talk to me about uh, how um, AI and specifically chat GPT might actually be a very valuable tool for, for instance, protecting human rights and limiting mm -hmm. the power of government. Yes, well, you mentioned those echo cameras, and uh, as I as I said earlier, so far, um, especially the left is very good with propaganda, um, and with using those echo chambers. So that, in fact, as I write in my text, it's almost as if we had chatbots already, as if we were right. already not talking to <laughs> other people, but to chatbots, because they anyway always repeat what they have said in the past. For example, uh, debates about, I don't know, climate change or public transport, or, I mean, it, both of us, we know, if we if we post a certain thing on Twitter, we can almost imagine what the other political side would reply. You know, we don't even have to do it. So, um, but uh, in that sense, it will not make a big difference in the political, in the political landscape. Instead, I think it can be like an equalizer of sort, because if we as uh, classical liberals, or maybe in the United States, the conservatives, which are more classical liberals than European conservatives in general, uh, continental European, mm -hmm. um, then we could, even the odds, we could also mass produce our bias, our language, and we could also flood the social media with it. And um, the important challenge is to not use that to also get more tax money, to also make more laws that annoy people, but to use it to protect constitutional liberties, to protect property, to protect free speech and all that sort of uh, all that stuff by basically doing propaganda in favor of it through AI. So rather than seeking to ban it, we should learn to work with it and actually use it to our favor in terms of promoting those ideas associated with personal freedom and limited government. Um, Torben, where can people follow you? Where's the best place for them to, to follow your writing and, and to follow you on social media? Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, basically, use my name, Torben Halbe. Uh, and I'm also a member of the Berlin Think Tank Ego Institute, um, which you can find online. I think it's ego-institute.org. Uh, Very good. It's wonderful to talk with you again. I hope we get a chance to visit soon. Sure. See you and uh, have a nice day. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Once again, we are happy to welcome back to the show Elise Amedro. She's a familiar voice for those who have tuned in before, but Elise, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Elise Amedro. Um, I work in healthcare policy in Washington, D.C., and I've been doing this for the past almost five years now. I'm really excited to chat today about um single-payer systems. Yeah, I, I read your article that was published in Reason, and uh, first of all, that's, that's a very thorough article, but I had no idea how, uh, how badly, across the globe, government healthcare systems are failing us. And to, to start out, for, for people who may not understand, what's the difference between a single-payer system versus uh, you know, other systems that they might uh, be familiar with? Can we make a quick distinction, just so people know what we're talking about? 
Yeah, I'm happy to distinguish them. They have names that are a bit complicated, but they're just named after their kind of the, their designers. So on the single payer side, it was designed at first by Lord Beveridge, who was a British man, as you might guess from his name, and he designed it in the 40s. And, the, and he was a, an economist. His idea is that to purchase healthcare services, what we need to do is simply tax people, and we take all of that pool of, of tax money and then spend it on a system that is also run by the government. And the care is free at the point of service, right? So you walk into a doctor's office, you get surgery. Those things are free for you, except you paid for them through your taxes. That's a single payer system called a beverage system. Um, the other type of system that we have, the U.S. is a little bit different, but I would say some more market-oriented systems in Europe, for instance, in South Korea. Um, those are called the Bismarck systems, and they're um, named after a German man, uh, Otto von Bismarck, who designed the system where you pool your resources together um, through insurance. And so there are government regulations around that insurance, but it's fundamentally done through private actors. So private, private providers are the ones that care for people, and it's not the government. Elisa, I'm, I'm imagining that both of these types of systems were proposed, you know, with the guise of we want to help the most people possible, um, we want to do the most amount of good, but it doesn't always work out that way. Talk to me about some of the, the shortfalls, especially in, in the single-payer system. In the single-payer system, the primary issue we have is that it's a system that's based on a fundamental distrust of patients. Patients are not able to pay for care. Patients are not able to know what good care looks like. And like you said, it's a good and it's a good idea. Like we want everyone to have access to that care, but it's premised on those things. And it also like it also assumes that providers don't care how much they get paid. They almost do it like out of the charity of their heart. Like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna provide care for this person because they deserve it. Except we all have incentives, right? So even doctors know that if they do if they do a good job, they should be paid more, right? So like this idea of a of, of full like disinterested um, practice does not really exist in real life. So when the government sets up a system that is based on those ideas, it actually kind of fails. And every time it gets something wrong, like say it gets, it gets wrong the wage that a doctor should be paid or a nurse should be paid, it's going to influence how many nurses or how many doctors go into the workforce. That in turn turns into wait lists. It turns into poor quality of care. And this is what we're observing in countries around the world, including the UK and Canada and Sweden. Okay, now I'm just coming at this from a layman's point of view. I'm not an economist, but it sounds like it substitutes the the judgment of planners within the state for the actual market itself, which would be much more adaptable to actual supply and demand. Exactly. And we saw that especially during the pandemic. And this is really what prompted, you know, my study of this of these issues because it's funny, since I started writing the article, it was, like you said, a long article, so it took me a bit of time to write it. In the meantime, the problems in the UK became international news because it's long been a problem. And here, I think, you know, conservatives have long said, look at Canada, Canada's so bad, the wait lists are terrible. And people, you know, on the left would say, oh, that's just a talking point. It's not that bad. Their quality of care is fine. And now we're actually seeing such dra dramatic numbers, such horrible stories of people dying, like hundreds of people dying outside um, emergency services or um, people waiting over an hour for an ambulance to arrive. Um, that's something that people can't ignore anymore. And we've seen this happen in the wake of the pandemic because providers were under such strain, like they already had those issues before the pandemic and you put a pandemic on top of it and doctors are quitting in those countries because they're not getting paid anymore. 
and they are carrying the burden of very like sicker patients who are potentially dying in their hands as they try to save them after they've waited so long for care. Wow. Uh, that's that is a much bigger problem than than I would have imagined. Now I have to ask: when it comes to solutions, obviously this is calling for a solution. But uh, what's what's the response from from the governments involved? Do do they tend to just think, well, let's keep doing more of what we've been doing, only harder, or do they do they have other options that they're looking at? So that's been interesting because in the past the simple response was more money. If you throw more money at it, things will get better. And in the short run, that's not entirely false. Right? If we have a provider shortage, just pay people more. And then maybe there will be more people deciding, you know what, I can, I can retire in five years instead of next year. Or I can become a doctor instead of becoming an engineer. But that's no longer enough because there is more to it than just the money issue. Right? There's the quality of the, you know, when you're a doctor in those conditions, you just simply just don't, don't want to have it. No matter how people can pay you enough to do it. And it's been interesting to see over the past few months, both in Canada and in the UK, this kind of questioning of like what what might pr- like private healthcare do in those cases where we have no other option, and people are coming to realize like this is maybe the only solution. And we're seeing it in Sweden actually. Um, there was a kind of a liberal speaking of liberalizing the market, like uh, empowering uh, private actors to provide care. That happened in the 2010s. And uh, it's actually led to a lot of providers going private and deciding to, um, you know, they can accept uh, government payment. So it's led to a spike in cost. It's not too um, dissimilar to the US where there's lots of private um, actors, but a lot of federal money that goes to them. It's really not ideal, but we're seeing that, you know, when it comes to waiting for care, people will do anything. They'll spend any money they, they can find on a private provider if that's, if that's what it takes for them to access good care. So I'm just curious. Uh, I know that in the United States, there, it seems like there has been a pretty long-term flirtation with going towards single-payer health care. Uh, what do you see happening there? Is is that gaining traction, or is that something that, in light of what's happened in some of these other nations, is is taking a step back? I think that there's a real change of of um, perspective right now. And I'm seeing that I'm seeing this actually in mainstream uh, outlets, like mainstream political outlets and healthcare-focused outlets that are usually very progressive, very much in favor of what people will call Medicare for all, who are questioning this um, model now that they're seeing those real numbers and real casualties in other countries. I think the tide is turning a little bit. We do have the issue that um, you know Medicaid is kind of substituting for this. People are starting to almost attempt a Medicaid for all, at least for as many people on the lower end of the income brackets, you know, to to um, uh, be put on Medicaid. And that's actually kind of a replacement for, I think, what was Medicare for all in, in the past few years. Um, and not a good one, uh, in my opinion, given the, the same problems we have in Medicaid as we do in those other countries uh, because of a single payer kind of model. Uh, but there is a, like, the conversation is shifting, definitely in the U.S., away from this single payer system idea. Now I have to ask about this only because I, I've seen the uh, I've seen the memes and and various comments on Twitter about Canada's healthcare system and apparently if I'm reading this correctly in response to um, the the high cost of end of life care Canada has more or less embraced uh, hey you know we can help you with uh, you know assisted suicide or um, basically you know euthanasia if if that's uh, your choice is that being mischaracterized or is that legit? 
No, in fact, I was trying to write about this for this article, and my editor pushed back and said, are you sure that they're doing this to attempt to save money or to make up for the fact that care is not available? And I, I, I dug into it. It didn't take me long. Doc, the Canadian Medical Association, so the equivalent of the American Association here, um, came out with a study showing that assisted, like um, physician-assisted suicide would save $136 billion a year um, to Canadian taxpayers. So it's a financial boon, and they are painting it in such cool terms. Like these are people, these are lives, these are patients who are desperate, who need care, and the best this government can offer them is suicide. We definitely don't want to go that route, and I think <laughs> no. lots of Americans are terrified by that, and that spans the entire political spectrum. I don't think anybody is interested in this kind of model, and so I think this is adding to the energy against you know moving towards this single payer kind of system. We only have about thirty seconds left, but I just have to ask. Where does reform begin? Where does it start? And, and regardless of the country, does it start within the halls of their lawmaking bodies? Uh, does it start in, in the public market? I cannot speak to those other countries because they are so restrained by the way their system is set up. They will need to start somewhere with their laws. For As for us in the U.S., we actually have a chance to tap into whatever little market forces left whether it's through the employer-sponsored system or people who are choosing to go against all of that and buy their own direct primary care plans with an individual doctor or simply to purchase insurance on the individual market, those people are the ones who are paving the way for more market reforms and uh, more patient empowerment. Again, we are talking with Elise Amedro. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and, and sharing this vital information. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome a new contributor to the show. His name is Parker McCumber. And Parker, since this is our first time getting to meet you, if you wouldn't mind, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. I am an entrepreneur and a military veteran. Uh, I joined the Army straight out of high school and have uh, over 11 years in combat arms roles with the Army. Uh, I also am the owner of Old Glory Flagpole and Service First Products. Um, so very patriotic at heart. Well, it sounds like it. And actually, having read your article in the American Conservative about uh, cracking down on gun owners, I'm like, yeah, I, I want to be on this guy's team. <laughs> I, I, I love your point of view. Um, let's talk a little bit about this recent ATF rule change that has the potential to, uh, to make criminals out of millions of law-abiding gun owners. Definitely, Brian. I uh, appreciate that feedback. Uh, so really what's happened here is the ATF, in conjunction with the Department of Justice, has passed a final rule on stabilizing braces, commonly known as the pistol brace ban, uh, which limits the ownership to these braces to people who are willing to register them and pay a $200 excise tax through the NFA. Um, essentially, they are restricting ownership of these braces to people who have the financial means to maybe have a few extra hundred dollars to, to throw it at an excise tax. And uh, they're really trying to just, I guess, punish firearm owners who they feel are 
getting away without paying a tax right now. Well, the power to tax is the power to destroy, or so I've heard, and, and it sounds like that could certainly be the case here. To help people understand what these braces are, um, you know, why why do gun owners opt to put these on their their rifles or pistols? I should say. Sure. So the stabilizing brace or the pistol brace was originally designed to help. Uh, disabled veterans, or specifically one-handed shooters, uh, be able to safely and effectively operate a firearm with their one hand. Uh, And a lot of shooters kind of were drawn to this um, design because it allowed you to, again, operate a firearm single-handedly with a lot more ease. So even individuals that aren't disabled and have uh, two functioning arms and hands uh, enjoyed the ease of use that accompanied those braces. Okay, and it it uh, now it didn't change the function of the firearm, right? It was still exactly the same firearm as before, albeit uh, you know it had a brace instead of a stock. And my understanding is, under the NFA, for it to to actually have a stock, it would have to be registered as a short-barreled rifle, and that would require the purchase of the tax stamp and that registration. So why was the, why was the ju- what was the justification for this uh, rule change by the ATF in the first place? Uh, So, you're absolutely correct. The brace as an attachment goes on the rear in lieu of a stock. Uh, And the reason for the ATF's press of this, or at least in the the documents that they've published on the subject, they are trying to recognize these pistol braces or stabilizing braces as butt stocks because of the additional surface area that they provide the rear of a firearm. So they're claiming that that surface area makes them a short barreled rifle, which is something that's kind of unprecedented, but they've been discussing for years at this point. Interesting. I mean, now I have to ask, is is a short barreled rifle more dangerous than, uh, than one with a standard length barrel? So, in my opinion, absolutely not. Uh, there's actually some arguments that, that I think are overlooked often uh, as to why a short-barreled rifle is less lethal or less dangerous, uh, particularly regarding muzzle velocity and the ability for the round, you know, obviously as a, as a firearm is shot, the bullet leaving that muzzle is building up velocity through the combustion that's happening behind it. Uh, and the pressure that it builds in the barrel as it exits the firearm. And with a short-barreled rifle, you're not able to build up the same amount of pressure. So you're actually shooting a slower-moving bullet, uh, but it's not changing, like you said, the function of the rifle. It's not changing the capacity of the magazine. It's not changing the uh, rate of fire at which it can shoot. Uh, it is strictly a accessory, a pistol brace is strictly an accessory that allows a one-handed or disabled shooter to be able to fire effectively. Well, it sounds like uh, th- there's a trap that was set here for, for those who choose to use those pistol braces. And and please correct me if, if I'm mistaken on this, but my understanding was as this rule was being debated, the ATF was saying, well, you know, here's what we'd like you to do is, uh, d- at one point, did they say, we'll waive the $200 tax if you just go ahead and register it like it was an NFA item? D- did I hear that correctly? Correct. So what's uh, currently been, been put out is that anyone who registers these pistol brace equipped firearms prior to, I believe, March 30th, 31st, uh, they will waive the, the $200 registration fee or the, the tax stamp that comes with it. So all you have to do is register it and they'll grandfather you in essentially 
Okay. Almost like a, a trap to register you into your firearms. Well, and, and look at what happens, though. You know, if you don't register it, though, you know, but... Uh, I, I mean, ostensibly, I guess, now they have justification to come after these, these gun owners with millions of people utilizing these stabilizers or, or pistol braces. Uh, is, it, is it feasible for the ATF to start going after them, or do they just have to keep pecking away at it as long as they want to? Not particularly feasible, in my opinion. And something that I recently read uh, was that with the previous bump stock ban, if you're familiar with that, yep. uh, there were estimated tens of millions of bump stocks in the United States. Uh, and when the ATF and Department of Justice moved to ban those, I believe in 2021, uh, less than 500 were actually turned into the ATF. So. I imagine that you'd see something comparable with a pistol brace. Uh, if they're not registered, the ATF uh, really is going to have a hard time enforcing the law if if it's upheld and not overturned, uh, just because there's tens of millions of gun owners who are going to have these braces, um, and there's no incentive to turn them in other than to avoid criminal penalties and fines. Now, there, there's a certain part of my heart that stirs at the thought of people being non-compliant with what I would consider unreasonable <laughs> regulations. And there's also a very deep concern about since when does the ATF, uh, since when do their rules carry the weight of law? That seems like a, a, a loophole that, that needs to be closed. Well, it's absolutely a loophole uh, and something that's actually pending multiple lawsuits right now. I believe at this time there's 26 states who have joined a lawsuit against the ATF uh, specifically for the use of administrative fiat to, uh, in essence, create a law while circumventing Congress. Uh, the ATF was never designed to have legislative authority or to create these rules in and of themselves. And they're kind of usurping the authority and the ability to do that. Uh, so that's actually a very large pending lawsuit right now. And and where, do, where will those lawsuits take place? Will they take place in federal district courts? Correct. Okay. Do you have a sense of, of how, uh, how likely it is that, uh, that they will be heard for that matter? Uh, so I definitely think that there's a good chance that they will be heard. And I, again, I kind of specifically point back to the uh, bump stock ban that we previously saw over the last couple of years. Uh, that was recently overturned uh, by a federal district judge. And so I expect that that kind of set a precedence that it recognized the ATF was not permitted to use administrative fiat and that they had overstepped their bounds. Uh, I would expect to see that same ruling for the pistol brace or the stabilizing brace ban. Well, it's uh, it's good to know that there are still states that are willing to stand up and interpose themselves, if necessary, between the federal government and their citizens. But very concerning that so, you know, with, with just the implementation of a rule, literally millions of people could overnight become criminals through no criminal action or intent of their own. Correct. And the really important thing to recognize with that statement is that these accessories were all legally purchased. They were not illegal when they were bought. Uh, and many gun shops and manufacturers kept these accessories on firearms to be sold commercially uh, because there was no regulation on it before. So you're, in essence, taking law-abiding citizens who legally purchased firearms, who went through their background checks, and criminalizing them for an accessory that doesn't influence the 
firing process of the weapon. Yeah, that does not pass the sniff test. <laughs> Never mind the no. whole shall not be infringed part of the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, that's supposed to be off limits to government. Well, I appreciate your work in, in writing this article for the American Conservative. And I'm going to ask you, uh, if, if you don't mind, Parker, tell us, where can people follow your work? Where, where are you published and where can they find you on social media? Absolutely. So most recently, like you said, I was published in the American Conservative. Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Parker underscore McCumber. Okay. And could you spell your last name just for, for those who are grabbing a pencil and paper? Definitely. Thank you. It's M-C-C-U-M-B-E-R. Very good. Parker, great to visit with you. I appreciate the fact that, first of all, you're a Young Voices contributor, but I also appreciate that you are speaking out on uh, important subjects like this one. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Hey, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciated it. 